You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me on the show again today is Ben Williams. And I'm super excited about this because Ben has his hand in so many things when it comes to habitat improvement and restoration and enhancement. And so he's going to help us all figure out how we can build healthier habitats for wildlife to have just a better overall outdoor experience when we're out there. If that's building the health of the overall ecosystem on your family farm or your hunting property, or just a place you like to go and enjoy nature and, you know, see the deer and the turkeys and the fox and the squirrel and the coyotes and rabbits and who knows what else you're out there looking at. But I'm just excited for this one because Ben is doing so much on his own properties. He's helping so many people in his part of the country, but I think the information that he has, the knowledge that he's acquired over the years can be beneficial to each and every one of us on our own property, whether it's big or small. So I'm super excited about this one and we are not that far from season. Like it's coming up quick. So what a good time to figure out how we can better increase our odds of getting that big mature buck to hang out on our property or to cross in front of us during bow or rifle season. So we're going to jump in. You better listen up because this is going to be good. Like he was doing things that were just badass. That was one of the coolest moments of my life. I was really scared, but knowing that Dan had the gun, I did have the rifle, like we would be okay. All right, guys, welcome to today's show and joining me again on the show is ben williams now ben is with old tin cup habitat restoration and enhancement and we've talked before about food plots and habitat improvements that people can be doing on big properties small properties and right now is kind of the perfect time for you to hop back on and share a little bit about what you do and what people can be doing on their property as the fall approaches so ben welcome back to the show man yeah, Dan, thanks for having me. I'm, you know, glad to come on and contribute. I got a couple podcasts, I think, lined up over the next couple of weeks. So talking the same topics. So I think it'll be good conversation and, you know, you never know where it's going to lead with it or who it might help too. So definitely worth the list for the folks listening out there. Yeah, it's, it's that time of year where, I mean, I keep thinking, I, I'm getting trail camera pictures from people 
they're like, dude, check out the buck. He's back. Uh, a buddy of mine from Colorado and from Utah actually both just sent me videos this morning of elk. And I'm, I've been more busy this year. Obvi- like my wife's pregnant right now. She could pop anytime. So that plays into it a little bit. But aside from that, I've just been like, go, go, go. And I have completely neglected the property that I mainly hunt here in Missouri. And so I'm hoping that this week, uh, potentially tomorrow, Thursday and Friday, getting out there, doing some work, putting up trail cameras, because I don't even have trail cameras. This is this is so weird. Like even just talking about it, I feel like such a failure this year, but it's not over yet. Season isn't here. There's still more to do. Um, what's going on with you? What's what's new? Uh, I, I'm sure business is booming right now. Yeah. So I guess strike out the wife pregnant. That's not something I'm dealing with. I'm, you know, hopefully at some point, but um, nothing that I got to contend with right now. But uh, real estate's kind of, you know, slidden off a little bit. Rates are coming, you know, going back up. Prices are kind of leveling off, maybe coming down. So I'm working with mostly buyers agents right now. I don't have any active listings on the real estate side of what I do. Um, but like you said, with the habitat stuff, it's just been booming crazy. It seems like I'm getting, you know, calls and emails every day from people, questions from clients in the past, and then, you know, some new potential clients, um, you know, going forward before deer season now, um, everything's picking right up. And yeah, I've been burning that midnight oil too. I think last night I got back to my parents with the tractor. Oh shoot. I think it was like 10 or so, maybe 1030 riding with the lights on and the flashers going after mowing plots and stuff like that in in the dark hours of the, the evening. And then, you know, I got clients that I'm doing a lot of plots for this year. So it's just all been super busy, closed on our house. So that was a relief, you know, finally got that process done for me and my wife. And we're happy with that. We love our little five acres we got here that, you know, we got horses and, you know, chickens, turkeys, all that good stuff. So, um, but yeah, definitely been busy. Thankfully, my wife puts up with it all. Dude, I know that feeling. Uh when whenever you're go go go, it's always good to have that that backup, that support system. Um but that's awesome, man. Like closing on a house, that's a big deal. Um the property side of things, as we talked about before we started recording, that kind of fell through for us. We were excited to get a small chunk of land, but we're not too worried. And honestly, even as I was just saying the food plot stuff, not getting anything out there, having trail cameras out, I know we'd still be getting deer and turkey on camera, but mm-hmm. it's been a drought here. I mean, I've lived here for about 12 years now, and I don't think I've ever seen it go this long without rain. And I'm talking like there's been two or three days in the last three and a half weeks that have been a sprinkle for. 10 to 15 minutes. I don't know the last time that we had a solid rain. And so I don't even know what my food plots would look like if I had them out right now. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. And with, you know, fertilizer costs being up this year, um, I didn't end up putting in any spring plots this year. Um, and I've only mowed my clover. I mowed it early on um, to kind of knock down some of the the early grasses, but I haven't touched those. And this is a great food plot tip that leans into that rain deficit. Uh, we're down two inches right now in rain compared to normal too. And the big thing with clover is, you know, a lot of guys want to mow it, manicure it, maintain it. Um, you know, you can do that with chemicals to maintain it, but the mowing I think is really key for your timing with it. 
if you do it during these drought conditions, you can burn out a clover field like instantaneously um, if you don't have rain coming. So usually I don't mow my clover um, unless I got rain coming in the in the forecast with it. So um, that's another thing to tie into the plots. But yeah, the spring plots, it just didn't happen this year. And thankfully with the rain deficit, you know, I'm kind of benefiting from that because I'll have a good thatch layer of existing vegetation when I do the no-till plantings. Um, going into these fall plants. So should be doing better, hopefully, than, you know, maybe it could be if I did spring planting. But again, we'll never know. Yeah. What a, what what can people do, uh, listeners do, whether they want a small food plot or a bunch of different food plots in the woods, in the field? I know there's a lot that goes into each location, but at this point in the year, I mean, we're in the hottest part of the year, July beginning of August is typically record heat for us here and, uh, or at least the record months for us here. Uh, what can people do as far as food plots or preparing the land for hunting this fall right now? Yeah. So there's a bunch of different ways to do plots. I've done conventional tillage plots. Um, but like we were talking about too, um, I've gone more of that kind of a no-till kind of spray it, spread it with the rain coming kind of deal. Um, and you see your soil tests actually, you know, hold better numbers um, as you go with that too. You don't need as much fertilizer. You don't need as much lime continually and stuff like that when you do that type of planting, but it's all based on timing. Um, so with location, obviously being the number one key, we always, I always hammer the access thing in, you know, make sure it fits to where it's located. Um, but right now I've just been out knocking down some of the taller vegetation in these plots to get ready for spray. Um, because again, we talk about that rain. If you're using glyphosate or a chemical like that, the plant needs to be actively growing. And when we get these, you know, hotter conditions, lack of rain, that growth goes way down. So it doesn't take the chemical in as quickly either. Um, so I've been in knocking my plots down with the tractor. I usually wait till after July because uh, most of the fawns are up and being able to get out of the way, um, which is huge. I don't like, you know, having any issues with with that, turkeys are usually nested out by now, um, so I'm not worried about breaking up hens and stuff like that. I do have some nice brood cover in some of my other plots, so I'm not too concerned about that. But um, getting your plots knocked down, getting your herbicide ready, getting your seed, and not trying to race to that finish line with everybody, um, trying to get their seed all at one time in August, or you know your plant might be closer to the end of August, September down in like Missouri in that area. Um, so those are things to consider is getting your seed ready, make sure you got your chemical ready, get your, you know, plot prepped, whether you're getting ready to spray it, knock it down, whatever, um, you know, get your ducks in a row, so to speak. So you're ready to hit the ground running when the, when the rain decides to come. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's good. Like just getting, getting everything prepared right now. Uh, I'm, I've kind of got a weird situation where I'm at and I'm going to break down my property. I don't know if we did this last time, um, but I'm going to do it just to give people a real life scenario and, and get your thoughts on it. So the property that I hunt, it's about 230 acres. It's all like, I'd say only 40 acres of it is separate. Like, it, and it's just one street that separates it. Um, mm -hmm. I'd say half of it is cattle pasture in Hayfield. Um, it has cattle on it almost the entire time. We've got good water, multiple small cattle ponds, a big pond, a creek that runs through. 
Uh, but where I focus a lot of my energy is on the area that the cattle can't get to. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got big soybean fields and they're on the south and on the east side of like a 12 acre woodlot. Now this woodlot sees a ton of deer activity. It's an amazing bedding habitat for, for the deer, especially the north end of it. Um, the neighbor has about 40 acres of corn. So we've got bean and corns like surrounding this bedding area, close water access. What would you recommend to somebody who does have abundant food like that for deer, but wants to maybe centralize them or get them to uh, a location for a possible shot opportunity with a bow? Cause I'm, I'm hunting the edges of that wood, that woodlot. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really my bread and butter. That's where we get the most deer on camera during scouting. That's where we see all the deer moving. They feed through that bean field and then into the woods. Um, but what, what should I be planting or what should I be thinking about in those woods that they don't have access to already? Right. So that's, that's something that soybeans touched on a real, you know, thing that I've been doing probably last 10 maybe even going back 12 years now. Um, I call them outlaw plots. I've talked about them on my YouTube and stuff like that before. Um, Whereas when you start to see those soybean leaves yellow, um, depending on your timing with that, uh, usually it's right around Labor Day or so. You can broadcast as long as it's okay with the farmer or whoever you're leasing the land to or whatever that um, situation might be. Just check with them first. And I usually broadcast a cereal grain into the standing soybeans around stand locations, um, maybe along an edge where you want the deer to transition to and then buy your stand. Um, and that's something I've had great success with. I killed a great buck. Um, my grandmother's a couple of, well, actually more like 10 years ago now, um, doing that, that very outlaw food plot or whatever I call it. I call it the outlaw plot, but, you know, just because, you know, it's something that you don't might, might not have the equipment to do the plots. And it's something a lot of people could take advantage of if it works out with the farmer relationship. So, um, you know, broadcasting in, you know, 100 and to 100, maybe 120 pounds of the cereal grain, rye or wheat. Um, and again, timing that with your rain, you know, to get your best results, obviously, because you're basically no telling it. So, yeah, that's good, man. I, I guess I haven't thought about doing that. I, I asked him at one point, um, I was like, hey, man. Uh, do you mind if like, even if I paid you for an acre, you know, mm-hmm. just bordering the woods, if I did like 10 yards all the way around the woods, uh, if I did a food plot and he's like, man, I got your food plot put in already. Look at all these soybeans. And mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, <clears throat> I get that. Like he's, he's constantly looking for more land to, to plant and to harvest, but uh, to find out if that's an opportunity or an option to, to broadcast something while it's still standing right before he's going to harvest it. Uh, mm-hmm. so it doesn't interfere with his crop production at all and yep. it'll still benefit me. That's, that's a, I'm going to, I'm going to probably get a hold of him today or tomorrow and, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe get ready to go out and broadcast here in, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. And that's, you know, a great thing. You know, like you said, if you get an acre along a, an edge or something like that, as soon as you start to get colder weather, when those beans are hardened off, it's going to, it's really amazing how quick they can wipe out an acre. Um, turkeys, especially if you get a fall flock of turkeys going into a what's left of standing soybean or something like that, they can wipe it out extremely quick, let alone the deer. Um, 
But yeah, that that when you start seeing those leaves yellow and maybe start a little bit of leaf drop, you know, broadcasting that in, it doesn't affect the farmer's crop because it's already matured. It's hardening off. You know, it's no longer growing actively. Um, and you put down a cover crop and another sell to the farmer on this topic is the fact that it won't be a weed barrier that he's going to have a tough time killing. You know, yep. it might outcompete yep. some of the tougher weeds he might have in that field. Um, unfortunately, with that, once you start talking to the farmer about that, next thing you know, they're drilling in the whole field to a cover crop after they harvest their beans. So you might have a full field of it a couple of years down the road. That's what I ran into on my grandmother's piece as they started to put in a, a rye or a wheat, you know, later after they harvested those beans off. Um, you know, but yeah, you can definitely definitely get some stuff happening with um with no equipment and you know maybe no access to the planting acreage with uh with doing that but it's a great tool i think and something that a lot of people should utilize yeah i'm definitely going to check that out this year that's that's brilliant because that's the one thing i've hesitated to do you know like i'll put i'll put out mineral blocks or i'll put out some some uh corn when when it's legal you know here i think we have to have it picked up before like 30 days prior to the opener of season and mm -hmm. it's changed at, at one point i think it was seven days or 10 days before anyways so i've done that but that's basically the extent of what i've done in the bean field because i didn't want to interfere with what he's doing and mm -hmm. then uh i've got on the southeast corner of the woods i've got a like a logging trail that goes into the woods uh it's the only spot on that whole perimeter where they don't have to jump the fence. Some deer use it. Some deer just jump the fence, you know, jumping four strand for a deer is basically a walk right. in the park. Um, but I've done a food plot through there before. And it was like some local hardware store, everything blend like works in any condition, something's going to grow. And it just didn't really do much at all. And I right. said, you know, forget that. I'm going to try to figure out something one, cause that's just getting them to that point. But I don't have a stand. I, I stay out of the woods completely. Like I hang my tree stand on the edge of the woods and I don't go in. I let that be their sanctuary. And so mm -hmm. uh, I, I kind of gave up on the idea of putting a food plot in the woods for the deer where I wasn't actually going to be actively hunting them. But maybe that's something I bring back. Yeah. Um you know, with, with the stand locations on the edge of the woods, sometimes it's harder to get off at night or you might be stuck on the stand a little bit more in the evening time. Um, you know, sometimes I like to get in a little bit deeper than the edge and hunt them before they get out. If you can get, you know, out after uh, legal shooting hours, you know, better that way. But um, each property in each situation is going to be a little different with that. But sometimes with those logging road food plots like that, um, it's, it's a matter of making sure you got enough sunlight going to it. Um, you're looking for vegetation that's, you know, if it hasn't been mowed or something like that, you're looking for something that's waist high, you know, or something that, to show an appreciable amount of growth for the sunlight that it's getting. Yeah. Um, I tell that to people all the time is, you know, you know, lower growth is lower growth for a reason, nutrient poor, uh, lack of sunlight, lack of water, too much water, you know, in some situations um, with planting food plots and areas. So that's all stuff to kind of consider and, you know, get an idea of, you know, how your, your soil is and your location is with that. But, you know, sometimes those logging roads are great spots to be able to hunt, let the deer go out to the, the ag field or the food plot, and then you can get off at night um, and not disturb those deer 
um, too. So you also get a crack at them before daylight or not daylight, but before sunset, um, you know, in those locations too, maybe just being a little bit into the woods because um, they'll hang in that, you know, area too. Even if it's something that's not planted, there might be, you know, some, some berry bushes, you know, some browse in there that they're feeding on. You might be able to hit them in a little bit of a, a staging area before they go out to that main food source. Yeah, there's been there's been a couple different times where I've thought about enhancing the edge there uh, around the woods because the owner of it he lets people come in and log it, and I've mm -hmm. I've been tempted to just be like, hey man, what would you think about me almost doing a full clear of the five five yards inside the fence line, basically like mm -hmm. knock down the woods, just let it overgrow, be real thick right there on the edge, give the deer something extra because there's so many mature trees in there that the undergrowth is hardly anything. And especially in the fall, you can almost look through the entire 12 acre woods from one end to the other because everything's just dead quickly. And right, right now, if I walked in there, I wouldn't really have a hard time. Like if you went and say you threw a basketball in the woods somewhere, there's not mm -hmm. many places that you could hide that to where I couldn't find it even right now in the peak of the growing season. And so, um, I, I keep thinking about trying to somehow improve that east edge and that south edge uh, to make it more suitable and a better transition zone for for deer coming from bedding to food. Yeah, definitely getting that, uh, you know, that horizontal structure in the woods and stuff like that, give them more security. Um, and you can do that, too, if, in a spot that works for your stand location specifically, you know, rather than going, like I said, a full broad across the whole thing doing it around your stand locations because that's where they'll it'll work like a funnel almost yeah. where they'll be attracted to that because there'll be food there there'll be you know more sunlight equals more food you know down on the deer level um and then when you're again approaching you know landowners and stuff like that about maybe doing some of these manipulations on a, a piece of property you know there's a lot of things to consider but getting a basic kind of working id i working knowledge of the the tree id in that area um, to know that you're not cutting down, you know, is walnut or is, is, is a young oak or whatever it might be, you know, to talking to the landowner and being like, you know, what, what is your, your logging goal with that property versus, okay, um, we can, might take out, you know, some soft maple um, or some poplar species or something that's not going to yield you any um, appreciable timber value. It will actually give more space to these uh, better suited trees for timber production and accomplish both goals at the same time. Um, yeah. So that's, that's a good way to go about it when talking to landowners about maybe doing some, you know, some light cutting in some areas and stuff like that. Um, you know, rather than just saying, I want to, you know, take the whole edge off. I want to take out some specific areas or go through your wood lot and, you know, take some of the lower value trees timber wise for that reason. Um, to make it better for wildlife and make it better for hunting, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. He, so the guys that I ran into this past year, I was heading out kind of blew up my hunt, unfortunately, but I was heading out and as I'm walking up, I mean, I'm walking across the entire property basically to get there. Uh, the, the access is pretty decent. Um, but like, I'm not really having to cross any of the main travel corridors for the deer to get to my stand. But as I'm walking down through this Creek bottom, I hear chainsaws going and I'm like, those sound pretty close. 
And as I get closer, I'm like, oh, crap, they are in those woods cutting right now. And this Mm -hmm. is like November. And I'm partially devastated, but also I'm like, you know, deer are used to this kind of crap. And uh, they could be back in here this afternoon when these guys leave. And I went in there and they had a skid steer and there was like three dudes with chainsaws and they were taking out basically any uh, walnut tree that was bigger than 18 inches. And mm-hmm. so they, they're like, hey, we'll get out of your hair. We didn't realize anybody was hunting here. The landowner told us last year that we could come do this, and we just got busy and never got to it, so we're doing it this year. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, all right. One, I'm glad it was the walnuts and not the oaks because mm-hmm. <laughs> all the oak trees in there, it's like, you know how it is. If there's a clearing on the ground and there's an oak tree close by, the deer are just huddled around that anytime there's a good acorn harvest and so uh luckily it wasn't that and luckily they didn't cut down my trees that had my tree stands in them uh Mm -hmm. that would have been a bummer (laughs) um (laughs) but yeah they they did that it cleared a ton of stuff out and honestly i was expecting this spring for there to be a lot more undergrowth because the amount of trees that they took out and it just doesn't seem like even with the mature trees coming out uh, there's so many other mature trees still in there that the sun's just not getting through to the forest yep. floor. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's a good point with, you know, a timber harvest or if you, you know, you're, you're thinning out a, you know, woodlot or whatever, um, you know, looking at the crown of the tree, you know, just because it's a mature tree doesn't have, it means it has a big crown to, to let sunlight down. Um, and again, the bigger, you know, broccoli topped oaks or whatever you want to kind of refer to them as, you know, they need that crown space for good acorn production. They need a lot of that, you know, for good growth. Um, so to really, you know, to let sunlight in, you got to take, you know, a good 30% to maybe 40% of the trees to start seeing real appreciable growth um, in that understory. So usually a selective harvest, you know, a diameter limit or something like that, most of the time doesn't yield a whole lot of sunlight down to the forest floor, um, especially with walnuts. They're not usually as you know, big broccoli topped as like an oak or a maple might be in a woodlot or whatever it might be. Um, so that's, you know, a good thing to consider where, um, and if they're, if they're taking the tops out too, or cutting the tops down, sometimes it's more beneficial to cut your log, take your log out, leave that top in there for that horizontal structure that we're talking about to still provide some form of, you know, structure in that understory, um, as well. So, uh, yeah, there's just there's a whole bunch with, you know, timber harvest and we could do a whole podcast on TSI and, you know, stuff like that. But um, but yeah, you got you got to take out quite a bit of trees to really make an appreciable difference in a lot of areas. So, yeah, that's something that I, I know very little about. I mean, I've I've tried to do my research and figure this stuff out. But at this point, I haven't had a property that I could actually make these major adjustments on. <laughs> Um, you know, this one, he's had people that have come periodically and harvested timber off of it for years. Uh, hopefully if, if one of these other properties that I've been thinking about picking up or looking at, um, works out, I'll be able to do some of this timber harvesting, um, you know, trying to open it up. A lot of it is old mature forests that, um, here in Missouri, like there's so many different types of trees, but, um, adjacent to my buddy's property you know we've been talking about doing that out at his place this year 
uh, taking out some trees, but same type of thing. It was like the amount of trees we're going to have to pull out. Like we don't have, we've got chainsaws is basically mm-hmm. what it comes down to. And yep. even with several of us, it's going to be a whole lot of work getting the oh, amount yeah. of trees out of here that we need. So, um, you know, maybe that's something that he could look at as far as contacting someone who would come and do it, you know, pay for the, pay for the timber that they're pulling out. Um, and he could, he could make those selections of what he wants gone and what he wants to stay. Uh, so who knows? I, I'm hoping here in the future to be able to make some of these decisions to be part of, you know, this type of improvement or, or enhancement. But right now I feel like everything I do is going to be fairly minimal but I do love the idea of kind of creating a funnel right there by my tree stand. If I make some small changes there, let sunlight in, let the, the understory become thicker, you know, within 20, 30 yards of my tree stand and not really focusing on the other spots. Yeah. And that's, you know, a good point. Like you said, you're not, you know, all that deep versed in it yet, just because you haven't done it. You haven't had the opportunity to, or the experience to do it. And that's where it ties back to working with, you know, like, uh, a land consultant or a consulting forester if you're looking for the timber value down the road or maybe even a combination of both there's going to be a little bit of give and take um with each of those applications um you know you could manage for better timber maybe not as high-end wildlife value as maybe it could be doing it strictly from a timber aspect um it all depends on the woodlot and the property but especially if you don't have that you know, working knowledge yet or, or just starting to get into it or don't really know where to start. I think working with a consultant is, is a great place to start with that before, um, you know, even, you know, trying to do something. Cause once you cut the tree down, you're, you're looking at decades to get that woodlot back or that, you know, that, that timber value back or whatever it might be. So um, I would definitely encourage people to work with a, a, a land consultant or a, a forester and whatever your application fits or maybe even a combination of both if it fits you yeah i will i will definitely be seeking professional help with that one because i just don't feel like cutting down that many trees and dealing Mm -hmm. with all the work and you know i'd rather create some type of income big or Mm -hmm. small off of it when i get to that point um what what does your hunting situation look like this year i know before we started recording, you had mentioned you're putting in close to like 30 acres of food plots between yours and, and, uh, clients. Uh, can you share a little bit about that? What kind of food plots you're looking at putting in? Um, you know, how many different species of plants you're going to throw out there? Yeah. So it, it kind of varies, um, different properties, different locations and 30 acres isn't by any means going on just my property alone. Um, that, you know, 30 acres is, in the, is a pretty heavy workload. It'll probably be in the high 20s. I don't know if we'll quite get to 30 with it. Depends on how it all shakes out with um, a couple of the new clients I've taken on. Um, biggest limiting factor is time with it, obviously. Um, and that's why a lot of the stuff I've gone to is no-till. And that's why selecting your, uh, your species and stuff like that accordingly is key with it. Um, so a lot of my stuff is cool season annuals. Um, uh, brassica type type species, uh, purple top turnip, uh, green globe turnip, uh, daikon radish. I mean, the list goes on and on. I got a whole list literally as soon as we started hitting the record button, I got the email notification from um, my seed rep because I build my own blends. 
for the most part, other than some clients have um, their, you know, favorite blend that they like to use or want to use, um, you know, in some situations, but mostly it's cool season annuals going in. Um, and again, if we do run into drought, we can always cool season annual a grain in instead of a brassica type species if we get, you know, short on our planting window, so to speak. Um, and then those, we can dial that up with a little bit of like a crimson clover, a medium red clover, something to put a little bit of varietal in either one of those kind of mixes. Um, I don't do as much mixing of a cereal grain in with my brassicas unless you're doing uh, like strip plantings almost of those species. Just because if you do put in, you know, a cereal grain, they're meant to go in, you know, like probably two and a half to three weeks plus later than a brassica planting would go in. So you have an over maturing cereal grain competing with your brassicas. So you're making a competition. Yeah. Um, and again, always calculating your seeding because you don't want to overseed stuff, especially like your brassicas and stuff like that you know, too much is, is too much. It makes a lot of issues with your uh, brassica type plantings. So, you know, knowing your acreage, knowing your seed breakdown. Um, and another good tip here is to read your seed label on your seed you're getting. If you're buying a bag from a, um, a big box store, might be up where I am, it might be Runnings or you know, Walmart even, or Bass Pro or whatever just looking at that seed label, looking at what's in that mix um, and what percentage of each species is in that mix um, is key too. I mean, a lot of people will bring you in with, you know, buzzwords of, you know, let's just say sugar beet. I see in a lot of brassica mixes, it might only make up 4% or 5% of that mix. And that needed to go in three weeks before your turnip planting needed to go in to get maturity. So some of these mixes, that say continual forage stuff like that you're kind of you're you're playing a really fine line with how that develops and if you're looking at five percent of your field matures you know that much sooner or doesn't even get to maturity because of what it is planted you know you're shooting yourself in the foot of taking five percent right off your table you know same thing with if you put a blend in that's supposed to you know uh had a great uh, conversation with a buddy of mine and he wanted to plant this blend and try it out but anything he planted he's gonna have to go back through now and plant again because everything he put in is going to over mature by the time season comes around it's going to go to seed it's going to go to head it's not going to be palatable or utilized by the deer so i told him i said you got to read your label you got to look at it and he's like well it says right on the bag it's for continual forage throughout the season and I was like, do you want your food plot producing at 20% for the fall? Or do you want it producing at 100% for the fall? Yeah. I mean, you got you to gotta look at it. And sometimes I'll divide plots up into um, like a perennial base and part of it for like two years with a clover, two, three years. And then by the time I get a cereal grain on part of it or a turnip on another part of it, I'll be able to rotate those crops over into different sections and bring them around. That way that plot's always producing for when I want it to produce. You know, looking at what's really in your mixes is key to getting the most production out of your fields. All right, guys. So I am constantly getting asked about the gear that I'm using. And the great news is that I've got it all listed out on Go Wild. Now, if you listen carefully, I'm going to tell you how you can get a $10 gift card to use toward picking up some new gear. Go Wild is a free social community 
where your photos aren't censored, they're actually encouraged. So much so that Go Wild will give you points for things like sharing your trophies, gear reviews, and inviting friends. Now, as you earn those points, you can unlock awesome rewards like gift cards and free swag, knives, huge discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex, and so much more. Also, check this out. If you create a free account, you can unlock $10 just for trying it out. So go visit DownloadGoWild.com to get started. That That is something that I ran into a couple of years ago. I planted a food plot, and at that point, it was a, a very small chunk that I could plant like within the bean field. Basically, it was a fenced-off uh, hay bale staging area, and he, <laughs> he had quit using it for hay bales. And so I was like, hey, sweet, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to knock down the brush. I'm going to, I'm going to scatter seed. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> when I looked at the, when I looked at the mix that this store had put out, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm reading up about each one of these different types of seeds. And some of them are saying they should be an inch below the surface. Some can be mm-hmm. scattered on top. Some need to be three inches below the surface uh, some do well in shade, some do well in direct sunlight. And I was just like, man, this is really odd. Like, like you mentioned, the timing of when you're supposed to plant them was mm-hmm. different for each one. And I was like, there's so many factors that go into this right now. I don't even yep. know where to start. And so I ended up going through and scattering it. And I was like, all right, we're going to see what happens. You know, I scattered it and then lightly raked back over it. I didn't like I didn't have the equipment to like till it under or do the, mm-hmm. the no till, um, system. And so I just scattered it and there was about, gosh, I don't know, maybe 150 square yards where it actually worked. And it was like in the lowest part of this hillside in mm-hmm. the shade and everywhere right. else, it just went back to native grasses. Right. And I was like, this is this is crazy and so as you were saying you make your own blends so that they work in conjunction with each other and they're not mm-hmm. competing for each other it makes perfect sense uh one thing you had mentioned is potentially doing like strip food plots you mm-hmm. know if you're going to plant if you're going to plant uh brassicas you know down this one strip and then maybe in between those rows you're going to do cereal grains or something else mm-hmm. uh what what's the benefit to doing that as opposed to uh bolt bulk planting or batch planting like, so, like you've been doing. Yeah. So there's, um, there, there's a lot of different things. And when you opened up that bag that you had from the store, if you remember back to that, you're probably looking at like eight, 10 different looking seeds in your hand. Yep. Oh yeah. Um, All different sizes, yep. shapes, colors. Yeah. Yep. So the different sizes is going to come out at a different rate out of your spreader. Um, so the big thing that I like with those, you know, strip plantings or section plantings and food plots, the, the reason of doing that is a lot to do with the, the seed gate opening that you have to have to do that. Like a brassica, I'm spreading that at like a one and a half, maybe a two on my spreader. Um, and then something like wheat, I might be up at like a four or a five. And if I go to try to do a turnip at like a four or a five, I'm going to overseed it because that seed's coming out too quick for that smaller size seed. Um, and that's why I like mixing up, or if you do mix your um, blends together with whatever you know situation you're going with, 
um, we'll use uh, we'll use like winter wheat and clover for an example because those two can be planted together in conjunction. They they work real well together. I'll spread my larger seed, like let's just say my uh, wheat in that example, first at my four or five gate, um, and then I will pack or you know whatever method you're using. Probably I would pack that situation, and then with obviously rain coming with this put my clover on after that at the appropriate gate, probably around a two. Um, and what that allows is to get that even seeding across. And I, I like having a little bit left in my seeder after I feel like I've covered the area effectively. That's how you know that you are at the right amount for that acreage. Cause you can go back over, you know, and maybe get a little bit where maybe I didn't get quite that right corner. So I'll put a little bit more in that. Um, and a lot of it is feel, trial, and I, it's really hard to explain, you know, with the seeding process, but a lot of it's a little bit of trial and error. Like you said, you might've just had your seed gate open in that one section. And that's why just that one section took really well. Um, so there's a lot of things to consider with that, but seed gate is huge. A lot of guys don't really talk about it. Um, and that's why I don't usually like a, a a commercial, I guess, built blend because of those reasons. You get different size seeds, yeah. Um, and you just need different gates for different seeds. So that's that's big with that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Uh, and I, I definitely know that there are certain spots in that in that food plot that got heavily seeded, and some that <laughs> probably barely got any. Because this at that point, that was my first time ever trying to put a, a food plot in literally no equipment whatsoever aside from a spreader and mm -hmm. um and some hand tools and so mm -hmm. right. <laughs> i know i i knew going into it that my odds of success were probably pretty low or you know the percentage of yield was going to be fairly low but i just wasn't expecting quite that low um yep. for for somebody like me who i currently all i've got is a zero turn mower Mm -hmm. I don't have any other type of equipment. Everything is hand tools. Um, what what should I be looking at doing in the fall, you know, in the coming months with those types of tools? Because I think a lot of people are probably in my position where it's like, hey, I can mm -hmm. go out and I can broadcast. I could rake, um, mm -hmm. maybe get a hold of like a garden tiller or something like that. But other than that, you know, not having a tractor, not having a side-by-side -side or a four-wheeler with an attachment mm -hmm. to pull behind. Um, what can people like me be doing in order to enhance the habitat? Yeah. So, I mean, like we talk about time is obviously the biggest resource. So with hand tools, you're going to be limited on time. So your hours per acre is going to obviously go down. So saying I want to put in a four acre food plot is just, <laughs> I mean, we're not, we're not, we're not settlers or the Amish putting in, you know, 12 hour days on our fields. You know, we're doing it when we can do it. Um, the biggest thing that I would say to somebody using hand tools in that application, um, you can be very effective with um, a backpack sprayer. You use quite a bit more, you know, obviously time than, you know, you would if you had a four wheeler with a sprayer. Um, some friends of mine, I've, you know, talk to them and maybe they can borrow their, their brother's four-wheeler or their father-in-law's four-wheeler, whatever it might be, you know, to be able to, to do that. Um, the biggest thing with smaller plots or any plot is getting a good chemical control on that plot. Um, 
or a, a weed control of some sort, whether it's a tillage or whether it's, you know, a chemical kill, that, that's your biggest key because you got to get rid of the existing competition, you know, before your stuff even has a shot to go. Because anything you're planting into is going to have a, a, a root base, a, a plant base, and it, you're, you're basically putting a, you think about it this way, you're putting a, a newborn in with a bunch of, you know, adults and expecting it to outcompete adults. You yeah. got to eliminate the existing competition before you try to seed in, you know, your new growth, your seedlings and stuff like that into those situations. So um, whatever control you're using is, is key. Um, with the hand tool application, I would say um, maybe invest in a backpack sprayer um, or see if you can, you know, find somebody that might be willing to lend you a four-wheeler you know, help you out. You help them out on their property. Trim stands out in exchange for the four wheeler coming over. Um, I've done stuff like that um, in the past, back before I had you know some of the equipment I have. But most of my stuff is actually just done with a four wheeler. Okay. Um. So, but then it goes back to all that stuff with less equipment. You rely more on that timing of that rain, that timing of when you're planting. Um. It becomes more and more crucial because you can't just be like well, I got, I got to do this plot. I have, you know, three hours, let's just say of work um, to do it with the tools I have. I have to time that with the rain. Whereas if you have a tractor, you know, you could do it in the hour and plant the same day, whatever it might be. Um, so you just get a little bit more, you know, limited by your time. But biggest thing is just getting your, your weeds controlled first with those plots and then selecting the right kinds of seeds that without doing a lot of tillage, um, will work really well for your brassicas, um, cereal grains, uh, your clo some of your clovers will do really well with that. Um, usually first time plot locations, I don't recommend putting in a perennial clover because some of those weeds you won't be able to kill all the way. You might be able to dye them back for this year, get your crops to grow, but then you're dealing with weeds in upcoming years. Um, same thing as why I don't do as much tillage anymore is because I'm not bringing up new weed seeds other than what's in that top layer of soil. Um, so you end up getting less and less weeds with your no-till plots as you go and cleaner plots because you're not bringing up a big flush of, uh, of new uh, weed seeds that are already in the soil. Because seeds in the soil can lay dormant for dozens, if not some of them even hundreds of years. Um, just wait for that sunlight and that moisture to get a chance to grow. That's crazy, man. I didn't, <clears throat> I guess I didn't realize that they could lay dormant for that long, but yeah, there's, there's stuff where, um, especially with some of the no-till stuff, because of some of the timings, um, a lot of my plots will get a flush of wildflowers, black eyed Susans, Queen Anne's lace, you know, some aster species, um, you know, the list goes on and on of some of those species that pop up and you see less of the grasses, you see less of those, those type species because, those forbs have been waiting there, but they've been under a big blanket of grass sod. And then once you get that out of there, they get some sunlight and some moisture. They're like, holy shit, I can grow now. And they pop. So you see a lot of that stuff start mixing into your food plots and you get out of, you know, some of the, the perennial grasses and stuff like that that can just take over and sod out areas. Yeah, that's, I mean, it makes sense. Like year to year, things can change even, even though like, what the farmer's doing, uh, especially mm -hmm. where I'm at. I noticed it this year and I was asking my buddy, I'm like, am I crazy? Last year when we were hunting turkeys in the spring, do you remember the grass being so tall 
that the turkeys walking through it, you couldn't even see them unless they mm-hmm. popped their head up and then you could just see the basically their neck and up. Yep. And he's like, yeah, dude, I do remember that. This year we went out and it was like the entire field was purple flowers. Mm-hmm. And when turkeys were in it, you could see their entire body. Yep. And I'm like, what did he do different? So I talked to the, the guy who leases it for crops and he's like, dude, same thing as always, you know, same thing. And yep. I'm like, something had to have changed. But if, if the weather conditions were just right, the moisture was right, the sunlight was right, and all of a mm-hmm. sudden the flowers started popping and it choked out, you know, those tall grasses that came up the year before, that makes sense now. Yeah, yeah. If he might have, um, you know, might have might have disked it before that, that'll break up a lot of that sod base and, again, allow some of those, um, you know, forb-type species to take advantage of that sunlight and that break in the sod. Um, there's a lot of things that could happen. He might've even sprayed some of those grasses in a kill where he hadn't been doing that for a couple of years. Cause it hadn't got bad enough to have to control those, you know, grasses or weeds. And then he got a, a late spray on it, kill some of those. And then boom, something takes advantage of it. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of different things could have been different crop rotation coming on and off, you know, to change what's going to come back out in the spring. You know, a lot of that changes, you know, based on just one little thing can change a whole field very very quickly yeah i like what you were saying though about uh you know killing out the weeds and if you have a backpack sprayer or even uh, a four-wheeler or access something like that i actually looked at a pull behind tank that i could mm-hmm. put you know some type of chemical or even just water in and it mm-hmm. had boom arms that came out and i yep. mean it's it was tiny it was i think it was like 180 or 190 dollars on amazon Yep. And I was like, that'd be perfect. I could pull that behind with my lawnmower mm-hmm. um, because the property that we were looking at, the ticks were so bad there. I'm talking yep. like you'd have 30 or 40 of them on there just from walking through like the mode field portion right. of it. And so I was looking at chemicals that would that would help reduce the amount of ticks and chiggers and mosquitoes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the people who own it, they said they've done that each year, but I was like, dude, I don't want to walk this whole thing spraying with a handheld sprayer. And so I started looking, but if I could be using something like that, I think the broadcast range on it's like eight feet or 10 feet mm-hmm. um, yep. to, to be able to go through and choke out the existing competition before planting. If that's like one of the biggest keys, $170 or $180, that's not a bad investment as far as the equipment goes. And most people with any amount of property have some type of riding lawnmower, whether it's a zero mm-hmm. turn or a tractor lawnmower. So, yeah. So most of mine, like I said, I do with like a 20 gallon or a 25 gallon, sorry, uh, Femco sprayer, which you can get those right at like tractor supply or, or something like that. Um, you know, and you, like you said, you could pull that behind your zero. If it's got a little hitch point for it, um, that would work good. Um, you would have to go with the pull behind four wheeler. Like I said, I like, a tank sprayer with a set of booms on it yep um get a little bit more coverage a little bit more uh effective uh gallons per acre um you're going to use a little bit more going with a tow behind and a lot more using a backpack sprayer you know just to get adequate coverage on the, the plants you're trying to kill yeah um but definitely getting the getting the weeds controlled i think is the biggest you know key to getting a good crop to grow um you know, for a food plot. Cause like I said, you're putting a, a newborn in with a bunch of adults. Dude. I, I think I'm going to have a hard time once I do have property, not becoming an equipment junkie. 
because as I was looking that up, I started seeing all of these sweet implements oh, yeah. that you could put on, you know, behind a four wheeler and it's like an all in one food plot machine or, yep. you know, you pull it behind a side by side, even the attachments I could get. And, uh, I was showing my wife those uh, pull behind tanks that you could spray with the boom arms. And I was like, it's even got a wand that I could hold while I'm driving to hit like more on the areas that yep. need more spray. And mm -hmm. <laughs> I started, as soon as I got done looking at that, I started looking at tractors. I started mm -hmm. looking at side-by-sides and four-wheelers. And I'm like, I'm going to be in trouble. I need to win the lottery or, you know, some find some other source of income if I'm going to start uh, really getting serious about that. Yeah. And that's the nice thing about the, the no-till kind of style of planting too, is, is you can do it with, like you said, your lawnmower, you can do it with, you know, uh, a four wheeler or something like that. And you don't have to have that giant jump in equipment costs. Um, you don't need to break the ground, you know, very much in a lot of applications. Once you start getting that, that, that weed base controlled, you open up that soil the sunlight and the moisture you know to be able to help your your plants grow you don't have to break ground to get that worked up you, you know what i'm saying so yeah that, that's where it becomes key and you can get them like i said you can go amazon route you can go tractor supply there's a lot of different ways you can do it um, i've picked up sprayers at auctions fixed them up and then sold them to friends of mine and stuff like that in the past too um the other key piece of equipment that i would recommend if you are getting into um, these plots without, you know, breaking the budget is a nice um, uh, packer of some sort, whether it's an old, old one you pick up at auctions. I have a whole bunch of them that I've picked up at auctions for parts and pieces and stuff like that. Old cult of packers. Um, packer Max makes a very good model. Um, that's one that a lot of people might be familiar with. Um, the only reason I haven't bought one is because I have a bunch of old iron ones that work just as well for, my application. Um, but if you're looking at buying them, the Packer Max makes great, a great uh, tool for that too. And that helps get that seed down to that soil so much more effective um, and press it in. So that that's key is getting the seed to soil contact, um, you know, after you've terminated your, your weeds over the top. Yeah, that's, that's good to know. I mean, there's, there's so much to learn about this stuff and mm -hmm. like, as long as, people do their research and really figure out what they need. It's, it's very easy uh, for me to see something and it's like, Oh man, I get, I get sucked in with advertisements, dude. You can't put an infomercial on in front of me because I'm like, wow, that's, I can't believe I've lived without it. Right. Uh, right. But we don't need all of that equipment. Like you said, there's, there's a few things, a few key items that most people could get away with for their applications or for their properties. Um, and so, yeah, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to look at a couple of those, even on the properties that I can currently hunt where I don't need to put a huge food plot in. I might just mm -hmm. need to make an improvement in a few key areas that are going to increase my odds of getting deer in closest fall. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, the nice thing about, you know, the, the, the lower amount of equipment is you don't need a big truck and a big trailer to haul it. You could get it maybe in the back of your pickup, you know, um, you know, I've, I've driven stuff down the road for a couple miles to different properties too. Um, yeah. you know, just because, you know, I didn't have the, the means to, you know, pay somebody to haul it necessarily for me. So I'll just drive a couple miles to a different property. 
Um, and I will say this because if anybody does follow my stuff, I did buy a tractor this year, but we have horses, we have livestock, you know, so to speak on our property. Um, we were able to buy that, you know, tax-free as an ag. And, but I also have a caretaker client that I do a ton of mowing for. They have a huge property, um, just down the road. So the, the net from that use pays for the tractor, you yeah. know, so that that's why I justified that purchase. Otherwise I wouldn't have a a tractor for myself. Yeah. Um, we do have one for the farm and that's cause we do, you know, 10 ish acres of food plots every year on our property, the, my family's main property. And then I do uh, another three or so acres on my, my grandmother's piece, just, you know, kind of over the hill from that. Um, but now, like I said, taking on clients too, um, some of them have equipment, some of them don't the caretaker one, I do his food plots for him. Um, so that's why I'm getting up into the the range where I kind of needed that piece of equipment to get that many acres done um, in that application. So, um, yeah, it all kind of depends on your situation. But for most guys, a four wheeler, a sprayer, a shoulder seater and a packer. Um, and you can you know use the four wheeler for other recreational stuff, riding with the family and other uses like that. So um, a lot of guys don't need a tractor, you know, by by any means. Um, they're handy. They do cut down on time, but um, the the cost, you know, doesn't necessarily uh, outweigh the benefits of having it either. Yeah. Yeah. I was in looking at tractors. I really wanted one and I was like, man, this would be so handy. There's so many times I could use it for, I mean, a tractor is kind of a Swiss army knife of heavy mm-hmm. equipment. And uh, I was looking at it, but I feel like it would be beneficial if if maybe we partnered up and we just make a video like a an instructional video or a trying to think basically convincing people convincing wives of why why tractors and equipment like that are so beneficial to us i my my wife was pretty convinced actually when i was talking to her i was telling her like you know even for plowing the driveway like that's going to be mm-hmm. handy if we need to clear trails because she does, she did want to clear trails on it. She wanted the kids to be able to ride their dirt yep. bikes around. And I was like, you know, we could use it for that brush hogging, mm-hmm. you name it. I mean, you can use it for a lot of things. And she's like, wow, I didn't think we were going to need equipment for a lot of different stuff. And right. uh, luckily she's pretty easy to convince, but um, yeah. yeah, I, it's something that I will have eventually, but right now it's definitely overkill for the stuff that, that I need. Right. Right. Yeah. And then once you get to that point, justify the purchase, you know, looking at what size you want. Um, everybody always says you always end up wanting to go bigger than what you get at some point. Um, uh, my limiting factor was I wanted to be able to get it in the garage. So that's why I was at the size I went with. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I'd have went maybe 15, 20 horses bigger um, for the for the workload it needed. Um, and then, like you said, the the benefits of snow removal of, you know, land maintenance and stuff like that. When it gets to that point, you, you might, you know, need a piece of equipment like that. So you're not putting a million hours on your, you know, your zero turn to go try to mow your, your trails into your property or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of things to consider with, with a tractor. Um, the other thing and not to, you know, work you out of maybe buying your own, but there are pretty economic places usually locally to rent tractors. Um, from rental places and stuff like that. So if you needed it for a weekend or a day to do your food plots, 
you know, and a lot of times they're a delivery included in that price, you know, delivering a pickup. So the only thing you got to do is make sure it's clean when you're done with it and it's got a full tank of gas or diesel back in it. Um, so if you need it to go knock out, you know, an acre or two of food plots in a day, you can do that very manageably for, you know, less than what maybe a tractor payment might be for, you know, a couple months or whatever. Yep. Um, so there's always other options if, if you did need them, you know, in some certain applications. Yeah. And we've talked about it. I mean, I've got a really good friend group around here. Most of them are picking up, you know, five or 10 acres here or there. <laughs> and a lot of them are actually in the same general area. Like we're all kind of looking at property within a couple miles of each other. And mm -hmm. so we've thrown the idea of around of all going in on one together, you mm -hmm. know, and that way we keep it at you know, who, <clears throat> whoever's house is kind of centrally located. Mm -hmm. And then if you need it, just call and come pick it up, you know, put yeah. it back on the trailer and have it be ready for the next guy when they need it. So, right. uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of ways to go without having to eat the cost of a tractor all on your own. Um, so that's, that's great to know. Have you had any experience? I know there's several different companies that are coming out with like the all in one implements for pulling behind a UTV or a four wheeler. Um, you know, it's kind of like a do it all food planter mm -hmm. or food plot, um, machine. Have you, have you messed with those at all? Yeah. So I have, um, I have some clients that have, you know, big Genesis drills, no-till drills and stuff like that. Um, you know, I've no clients that have used like the plot master is another real well-known brand. Um, the biggest thing is making sure the size of the implement you get fits the unit that's pulling it or being used with it. Um, so with um, like the no-till drills, you're going to need to get into a, a much larger size tractor than you might need um, for just doing like your brush hogging and, you know, maybe spraying or whatever. Um, you're going to need a bigger tractor for that. You're going to need a, a thousand plus CC UTV to pull some of those implements because they're, they're heavy. Yeah. Um, they're, they're an all in one unit. Um, it does save time. Um, like I said, though, most guys, if you're doing, like I said, less than four or five acres of plots, you know, on the high end, I think a four wheeler and a sprayer and a broadcaster can get you everywhere you need to go, you know, pretty reasonably. Um, those units are, are great. They're very effective for the people that, you know, have limited time and have the money to justify that as a, in exchange for their time, so to speak. Um, but I think you could definitely get a lot more out of a four wheeler and, the last two years I've done over 10 acres of plus with just a four wheeler nice. You know, on our property. So, you know, you can do it. Um, you just have to time it, <clears throat> have your right set up with your spraying and your spreading and have it, you know, all kind of work together um, or be able to block out a day to be able to knock out, you know, quite a bit of acreage. But, um, you know, just because I don't have the the means to, to drop, you know, eight, $10,000 on a, a drill or an all-in-one unit or something like that. That's, I mean, I feel like it's going to be a lot easier to convince my wife of a four-wheeler mm -hmm. than a big tractor. Yep. So uh, I like, I like where you're going with this and, you know, down the road, if I do end up with more property and, you know, I need to be putting in bigger food plots or I have uh, a larger need for a big tractor, I can look at that. But it's really encouraging to hear that I can get a lot of it done with a, with a sprayer, with a spreader mm -hmm. and a four wheeler 
And if you're, if you were doing it, you know, 10 acres of food plots, I'm definitely not to that level at all. You know, I might be doing mm -hmm. an acre or two max. Yeah. So that seems, that seems very doable, man. I'm, yeah. I'm excited. I need to now start figuring out exactly what I'm going to do, where I'm going to do it and when, uh, hopefully my time frees up soon. Right. Right. And then that's the thing with my four wheeler. Like I don't have like a, a brand new, you know, shiny off the showroom, you know, four wheeler. My, I think it's like a 1998, uh, Suzuki and it's only two wheel drive. <laughs> I mean, yep. it's not even a four wheel drive one. And I think I bought it off of a neighbor for like, I forget what I paid for, like 450 bucks. That's and awesome. I changed the oil in it because he never changed it. Changed the oil, the air filter, clean the carb quick. And the thing runs like a million bucks. It's bulletproof, little gear driven one. Um, it's it's a great little machine. I think it's only like a 250 maybe. Yeah. You don't have, I would recommend going to something if you're going to be pulling packers with it and stuff like that. You know, you're going to need to go into that four, 450 range or so um, and uh, get one with a, a good transmission. Um, Polaris is, I haven't had that great of luck. The belts seem to burn out in them, um, you know, from some of my buddies that have had them. Um, but Yamaha's have always been pretty good ones that are geared real, real good for, you know, utility and get a utility machine, not a, a touring or a, like a trail riding type machine. If you're looking to do it, because for the amount of, unless you're doing hundreds of miles of trails, you can ride on a, a sport four wheeler or a sportsman's four wheeler for you know, just as comfortable a ride really, you know, yeah. for what you're doing with the kids or the wife and doing your work and being able to get multiple use out of it. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I had bought a couple four wheelers in the past when we used to live out on more property. Mm -hmm. And the problem is I got addicted to that, man, realizing mm -hmm. how cheap you can get four wheelers for used four wheelers mm -hmm. on Facebook marketplace or Craigslist. Oh man. Yep. I think I ended up getting one and then it was like, oh, my wife wanted to ride too. So then we got a second one and then we had friends come over and it's like, well, all right, well now you and I are back to riding together. They've got to ride together. I was like, maybe we just need four. <laughs> but yep. I mean, when you can find them for a couple hundred bucks a piece or, you know, $800, mm -hmm. I started buying and selling them like crazy. And I was, yep. I was in and out of 10 different four wheelers in a six month period. And then right. I just worked my way up to the ones that I actually wanted. So, um, yep. The, the fact that you can get into all the equipment you need to do most food plots that the average guy has on his property for, mm -hmm. you know, under a thousand bucks all in, and you've got the yep. equipment now for multiple years to come. Uh, mm -hmm. That's something that people need to look at for sure. Yeah. And don't be afraid to get used. Like you said. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And like I said, your big, your biggest piece is going to be your, your unit, your, your tractor, your four wheeler, whatever. That's going to be your biggest cost. Um, their sprayers are going to be pretty, pretty similar. I think you said like 170 bucks. You saw the one for, um, I think the FIMCO is, um, getting to be this time of the year, they start to knock them down at like tractor supply. So you might be able to get one for, you know, 250, 300 bucks. You know, I think the Packer Max are somewhere in the $600 range. Um, but like I said, you could get one. I picked them up at auctions before for 50 bucks. Um, but they are dead heavy. So, yeah, I mean, they're solid iron, but. Um, you know, they work and they're really good units for that. But like you said, for, you know, sprayer, if you want brand new sprayer for like 250 packer for like 600, you know, broadcast spreader, you're like you said, into it for 
less than a thousand bucks for your your implements. You don't need to get a pull behind ATV disc. You don't need to, you know, break that ground. You're not putting in corn or something like that, you know, in small plots. So you're using cool season annuals. You're using those perennial clover plots you establish or whatever it might be. So you can use the right type of equipment with the right steps to get where you need to be. Yeah, absolutely. Well, dude, I appreciate you hopping on, man. I, I feel like we could talk about this and give people tips and tricks for hours and hours. Um, mm -hmm. But I know you put out a lot of great content for it. Where can people go and find you, follow along, get more information on what they can be doing on their properties? Yeah, so I do. Um, I haven't been doing as many of them because I've been so busy, but I've got to get better at it. Um, I do a lot of stuff on my YouTube channel. That's Old Tin Cup Habitat Restoration Enhancement, just like my, uh, my company consulting name. Um, put content on Facebook, Old Tin Cup. Um, I do Instagram as well. It's Old Tin Cup. And um, yeah, that's, that's where my content mostly is. I do some TikToks here and there, but um, my, in my YouTube videos, they're, they're straightforward like this. They're single take. You know, if I bumble my words, I'm, I'm keeping going. There's no edits, no cuts, no nothing like that. Um, with my videos, you know, no product placements or anything like that. It's just it's single take videos in the field of what I'm doing um, or, or what I think might be helpful. And I, I don't know how many videos I got up on there. I did a series on like weed identification. Um, I did small series on, you know, management Mondays, food plot forestry Fridays. I had that going for a while when I had a little bit more time. Um, I'm going to get back doing into some of that stuff, you know, on the regular weekly or biweekly with some of those videos. Um, but uh, yeah, because the, the, the visual content is what everybody, you know, consumes or gravitates to. So that's, you know, where I can help the most people with it. I um, mean, that's hundred percent, you know, free content or whatever. Um, and then, you know, if anybody has any questions or stuff like that, I try to get to them the best I can, or if they're interested in, you know, working with me as a consultant, or anything like that, you know, you can email me uh, over at otc.management at yahoo.com. Um, my direct phone line is 315-879-7802. Um, so, yeah, I'm, you know, always, you know, helping people. People text me questions, images, pictures, whatever, um, you know, on the daily, multiple times a day. So um, I live it and breathe this stuff, man. It's always, always going on. So, but, Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, dude, I appreciate you uh, joining me again for the call. I feel like we're going to be doing this quite a bit, uh, giving people uh, ideas of what they can be doing to better their habitat, to have a more enjoyable experience in the outdoors on their hunting property. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing how things go for you this fall. Uh, we're getting close, dude. Season's Absolutely. not that far away. So Absolutely. hopefully uh, we do anything like archery leagues or, you know, do you do like a, a big buck contest or anything like that during the, the fall or. Yeah. So we try to do, we try to do some type of pool, like big buck pool um, mm -hmm. between me and my buddies. Uh, we do the same thing in the, in the spring for turkeys. Uh, yep. As far as archery leagues, I haven't gotten into them just because every every day is different for me. And typically like they land on yep. a certain day, I've got yep. three nights a week that are taken up already. Mm -hmm. And then the other nights I'm spending podcasting or editing. And so uh, I haven't yeah. done that, but I've been shooting my bow a ton lately. Um, mm -hmm. just getting ready, uh, 
testing out multiple distances and it's just this time of year it's like it's so hot and miserable outside but the fact that fall is right around the corner just keeps me going yeah no i got archery leagues tonight with a couple buddies of mine we actually overindulged at a sportsman's banquet we made a silly bet this past year Um, there wasn't any money tied to it unfortunately the losing prize was you had to get a uh i don't know how the best way to say this basically your your ass waxed (laughs) was the smallest (laughs) buck and guess who didn't shoot a buck last year oh no (laughs) oh my gosh yeah you guys are i'm like i'd rather fork over cash but when it comes to other people yeah i'd like to i'd like punishments like that those are those are always fun you know it's all in good fun or whatever and um you know and like i said it's it's all about the the camaraderie bit of it yeah you know and stuff like that whether it's a buck pool archery leagues you know stuff like that I, i love those pieces of it for sure but um but yeah um, yeah, the and like I said, I'll see all those hunting. guys, and I'm sure they're going to ask me when my my waxing appointment is at some point here pretty soon because we're getting close to season. <laughs> I so. feel like you need to go live for that one. That'll oh, be no. that'll be a hit. <laughs> yeah, it'd be like the Steve Carell and the 40 year old virgin episode. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. that'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, Ben, dude, I appreciate it. I know you're a busy man. I'm gonna let you go. Uh, I'm hopping on another podcast soon. And dude, thanks again. It's always a pleasure. Always, man. Keep the content coming. I love it. Will do. We'll see you. All right, man. See you. And that is going to wrap it up for today's show. Holy cow. That's a lot of information that we can take in, that we can use and put into practice right now to get ready for the fall, to start getting those deer used to hanging out, eating in front of our tree stands, crossing the path in a certain spot that we want them to. And you better believe I'm going to be consulting Ben a lot more throughout the fall and as we get closer to season to figure out just what what I can do to give myself a little bit more of an edge when it comes to tagging a big buck or a mature doe or whatever it is that you're out there to pursue. And so thank you guys for listening. As always, I enjoy it. And I haven't asked this in a while. If you haven't already, go and leave a review and a rating on whatever listening platform you're part of Um, that definitely helps me it helps get the podcast out in front of more people and hopefully they can also be benefiting from conversations like this now I've got to let you know I'm probably going to be going and putting out some trail cameras I have been so bad about getting trail cameras out and I'm looking at getting a few uh, cellular cameras but I'm also going out and gonna dial in my rifle I've got a new one coming actually It will be on the way by the time this episode airs. And I'm starting to get accessories in for it already. I've got a new scope coming for it. And my goal is to build a very long-range rifle to take out West. Something that's still light, packable, and, dude, I'm pumped. Like, I have butterflies in my stomach just thinking about laying down, shooting, and watching the steel cling or ring or bang or whatever you want to call it out at long ranges so enough rambling about my new firearm also help me come up with a name for it i'm gonna i don't really name my rifles but i think i might start uh anyways moving on thank you guys for real for listening it's a treat to be able to share these experiences these stories and this information with you so until next time always choose adventure and god bless